0: Welcome back to another edition of the Mintcast, the official podcast of Mint Press News, a new service dedicated to watchdog journalism that holds the powerful to account and goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories the corporate media doesn't want you to see. My name is Whitney Webb.
1: And I'm Alan McLeod. And together we're going to not only discuss and analyze the big stories that the government and corporations want kept under wraps, but also revisit past events that have shaped our world that the media has helped to uh, hide for decades. Let's straight uh, let's straight dive into some of Mint Press's top stories from this week. With U.S. Iran war ball now rolling, could an accident or false flag serve as the pretext? As the U.S. seems to move its gaze away from an unsuccessful coup in Venezuela to the Middle East, our top story this week is Iran. Mint Press News published a pair of articles on the possibility of war with Iran, including one called, With the US-Iran War Ball Now Rolling, Could an Accident or a False Flag Serve as a Pretext? As tensions between the US and Iran arise, the possibility of an accidental trigger to a very real war rises too. Conservative British Foreign Minister Jeremy Hunt after a meeting with U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, declared that he was worried by the prospect of an accidental, unintended war on both sides that could spark a huge international conflict. Yet, the prospect of war, far from terrifying them, has many in Washington rubbing their hands in anticipation, not least the President, who recently announced, if Iran wants to fight, that will be the official end of Iran. Never threaten the United States again. Likewise, Trump's national security advisor, John Bolton, has dreamed of a war with Iran for decades. This comes off the back of the news that Bolton had ordered the military to prepare to send up to 120,000 troops to the region, a number similar to the force that invaded Iraq in 2003. The invasion of Iraq is now accepted on virtually all sides to uh, to be started on fraudulent grounds, Saddam Hussein did not possess weapons of mass destruction at the time, and none were found in the intervening years. Nor uh, was the 45 minutes away from unleashing Mushroom Cloud on London or New York that the government told us was true. The United States has long had a history of going to war on false pretexts, including the USS Maine incident that triggered the US involvement in the Spanish-American War and the Gulf of Tonkin incident in Vietnam.
0: Yeah, um, I'm glad that we're talking about these, these false pretexts and these, these sort of events that, um, at, at least, you know, in, in the Gulf of Tonkin incident were said to have happened and turned out to never even have, have happened at all. Um, and, you know, in, in this article series that we're talking about, there are a, a few, uh, uh, incidents in the past or planned incidents that ac- never actually happened, but were, there was, uh, they were in the planning stages at one point, um, that are particularly relevant to what's going on right now between U.S., um, uh, tensions between the U.S. and Iran. Um, the first of that would be the USS Liberty. Um, this was an attack on an American ship uh, near the Sinai Peninsula of Egypt during the 1967 war uh, between Israel and several Arab countries, including Egypt. Um, and what happened here basically is that um, the uh, Israeli military attacked this ship, even though they knew it, it was American, um, with the intention of sinking it. Um, leaving no survivors and then blaming, uh, the, the destruction of the ship on Egypt in an attempt to sort of draw the U.S. into this war, um, on Israel's behalf, which, you know, is, um, <laughs> a really horrific thing to do. And actually, there were Israeli pilots that, when they saw it was American and were ordered to fire anyway, uh, they actually refused, went back to Israel and were jailed by Israel's government for refusing to, to fire on uh-huh. the ship. Um, but, you know, you had like uh, 34 were killed. You had almost over a hundred injured. Um, it was, you know, a 300 man crew and, um, the U.S. government, um, you know, w- when the ship didn't sink, uh, the president at the time, Lyndon Johnson, uh, actually, engaged in a massive cover-up on this and he actually when he found out Israel was attacking the vessel he he didn't even uh he didn't even send ships to try and American ships in the area to come to the liberty's aid he basically was going to let Israel sink the ship um and because he quote didn't want to embarrass an ally which is really telling um so you know this is relevant now in my opinion because you know we have uh elements of Israel's government particularly Benjamin Netanyahu have been pushing the U.S. to be um, to sort of lead um, a war with Iran for a really long time because they don't want Israel to be on the front lines. They want U- the U.S. to fight this war for them. And of course, uh, Netanyahu has been behind a lot of this false intelligence that has, you know, uh, was is actually the basis for a lot of these current tensions that we're seeing between the U.S. and Iran. Remember that Bolton's uh, press release earlier this month that really started all of this was based off of Israeli intelligence that he received from Israel's national security advisor, his counterpart in Israel, um just a few weeks prior. So um, that it's important to keep that context in mind uh, there as well. And also another important incident... Um, That never actually happened but was planned and was planned relatively recently and was planned by the neoconservatives of the Bush administration, of which Bolton uh, himself was part, uh, was a plan that Dick Cheney uh, – well, the plan was uh, discussed during a meeting held at uh, Dick Cheney's office in 2008, and the idea was to dress up uh, U.S. Navy SEALs as Iranian sailors, um, construct a boat in the U.S. or or U.S. – naval base somewhere near the area, uh, construct a ship that looked Iranian, put these U.S. Navy Seals, the skies, Navy Seals on the ship and then send them to fire on Americans, um, you know, either in the Strait of Hormuz or somewhere in this area in order to uh, justify a war with Iran. Of course, it didn't end up happening, but it tells you the mindset of these people, um, some of whom are are in the current administration, have important roles in that administration. But, you know, d- despite this history, what's based on what's happened most recently, it looks like you know, the plan um, that the administration has had with Iran since Bolton's press release and all that's followed over the course of this month, um, instead of being aimed uh, and sort of instead of, you know, false flag or events like that, um, being on the scale of the USS Liberty or this plan Dick Cheney had, they've really been much more minor by comparison so the sort of events they've tried to peg in Iran, for example, have been things like, you know, these, these apparent explosions that harm these, these four ships and, uh, the United Arab Emirates near the Strait of Hormuz, this, uh, Houthi attack, this Yemeni attack on, on Saudi pipeline oil infrastructure and these missiles that were allegedly fired close to the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad, things like this. And, and, you know, I'm sure on every one of these occasions, Bolton and Pompeo, Mike Pompeo, you know, we're gunning for war, but let's remember too that, um, you know, the Bolton press release said that the U.S. would respond with, quote, unrelenting force if any Iranian proxy, whether real or imagined, they don't actually have to be an actual proxy of Iran. The U.S. government just has to think they are. You know, they said, uh, Bolton said that that unrelenting force would be, you know, uh, unleashed against Iran if any of these alleged proxy groups, uh, attacked U.S. interests in the Middle East or an allies' interests in the area. But it really looks like, um, This gambit has failed because we're having acting uh, Secretary of Defense Patrick Shanahan. uh, He's saying that, you know, all these uh, deterrence measures and all these threats and this bombastic rhetoric, like that tweet um, that uh, Trump said about, you know, the official end of Iran that you mentioned. um, All of this has, quote, uh, put on hold the potential for attacks on Americans against Iran. So they're basically declaring you know, uh so basically, you know, this questionable intelligence that came from Israel on which this whole show has been based has really turned out to be bunk. And, you know, this really shouldn't surprise anyone who's followed the story closely because, um, even top British commanders in the Middle East said it was bunk. Um, uh, but anyway, now the U.S. Uh, government, the trip administration, they're, they're claiming victory for stopping this supposed threat that was based on a lie anyway. And, and, you know, this combined failure, uh, and, and, and this, of course, is combined with the the failure to make you know any headway at all, and its failed coup against a Nicolas Maduro in, in Venezuela. I mean, <laughs> uh, it, it's just a it, it just makes it it just shows U.S. foreign policy is just like uh, a a joke, really. I mean, I feel like you know a lot of countries of the world are laughing at the U.S. and how like their their aggressive policy is just like you know. Uh, clownish in one sense. I mean, obviously it's super dangerous, but it's just also, they're, they're really bad at what they're trying to do. Um, or at least it seems yeah. that way anyway.
1: Yeah. Going back to that, uh, trigger for worry that you did mention, if anybody's not up on it, what happened was on May 12th, there were four oil ships from Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and Norway that were reported to have been attacked in the Gulf of Oman, so the Strait of Hormuz, which uh, separates Iran from Arabia. And the UAE and Saudi Arabia didn't accuse any country, let alone their enemy, Iran, of uh, attacking them. But the U.S. was the one that immediately blamed the Islamic Republic or one of its proxies for attacking it, which Iran immediately rejected, calling it, I think, a conspiracy orchestrated by ill-wishers. But if you actually look at the pictures of the damage... I mean, damage is really, it's almost like a, an incendiary word. It's like a couple of dents on a ship. There was no oil spill. There was no deaths or anything like that. It was just like, you know, some, uh, some super rich shakes boat got a bit dented and this is suddenly uh, supposed to be a pretext for war, which is why I don't really buy it. I just think, you know, if that was a pretext for war, I just don't see anybody in the US caring one little bit about it. And the other question is, why would Iran want to uh, cause a huge oil spill off its coast, right?
0: <laughs> right. I mean, that's a good point, too. And, and let's also remember that the that the UAE, um, or the government in this area, this this, this port area where all this happened, uh, actually initially denied any sort of attack or anything like that, because, you know, even though there were reports of explosions or stuff, it didn't affect any sort of business that was going on in the port at all. Um, so it, it really seems by, by you know, uh, by all measures do have been something really minor. Um, you know, I'm no expert in this sort of stuff, but I do know that, you know, in, in the area, uh, where this happened, there was actually a, recently a mine warfare drill held by the U S the UK and France and the Persian Gulf uh, last month. So I think right, it, yeah. it, it could be, you know, possible that, uh, you know, some of these ships might've just like one of them might've triggered a sea mine or something that was left over from that or that, that had been there for decades. Um, who knows, but I mean, it doesn't really seem like it was any sort of premeditated attack unless, you know, you know, if, in if Iran or some sort of Iranian proxy had wanted to sink these ships, I mean, they obviously did a very bad job because of the pictures that have been released, which aren't many. I mean, it really doesn't seem, um, extensive. And I think that's why they've taken to calling that, that, that attack, you know, sabotage in, instead of something more, um, you know, drastic.
1: Yeah, Sure. I mean, <clears throat> another thing I've been looking at is what uh, what Donald Trump has made of it. You know, before he was president, he used to make highly anti-war comments uh, about Obama and uh, about a conflict with Iran, claiming that uh, Barack Obama was trying to get us into somehow another unwinnable war with Iran, just to boost his <laughs> poll numbers, right? Yeah. And now suddenly, when he's in uh, Paris, he's become the biggest cheerleader for war there. He's certainly not an uh, anti-war voice, I mean, maybe he was in the past. I think that's highly questionable. He certainly isn't anymore because his record is clear. You know, he's expanded the wars in the Middle East. He's drastically up, uh, increased the amount of uh, drone attacks going on there. He's been a big uh, cheerleader for war in Saudi Arabia, uh, with the destruction of Yemen. He dropped the mother of all bombs, which was the biggest non-nuclear weapon ever uh fired in anger he dropped that in afghanistan i mean the list goes on and on and yet there does seem to still be this lingering feeling that donald trump is perhaps you know an anti-war figure that's being held hostage by john bolton or mike Pompeo. Yeah. and i, I don't no, buy there, that. there's
0: definitely some people that, that are still promoting that and actually recently um you know trump came out and it was reported on conservative media mainly of course that he was blaming um, a lot of this foreign policy stuff and like him not being able to withdraw from Syria and things like that. He blamed by name the military industrial complex recently. And you know, I think that's interesting because, you know, he's sort of making this, well, it was sort of interpreted by like Trump supporters that like he's, he's fighting against it or he's like, you know, um, he, he's against the military industrial complex, but that's really insane. I'm, um, it, again, if you look at Trump's record, because he, he's forged really close ties with Boeing, a major um, military uh, well, a major arms manufacturer and other arms manufacturers. I mean, he's made that since he became president. The cornerstone of his uh, foreign policy in diplomacy is to sell more U.S. weapons abroad. Um, you know, and have uh, diplomats when they go um, to other, you know, when they have official meetings sort of promote uh, arms, uh, the purchase of U.S. arms and things like that. I mean, that's been like a major focus of his whole presidency. So for him to all right. of a sudden be like, oh, no, the military industrial complex. Well, I'm sorry to tell you, dude, but you, you worked really hard to inflate that uh, complex as much as possible. So if you're mad about it now, maybe what you did before was a bad idea. So it's sort of, you know, I, but I feel like, you know, Trump isn't a, a, a total idiot, so I think he may have sort of timed these sort of comments uh to try and and give, you know, people in his base the hope that he's like still trying to do the good fight from the inside and all, and all this stuff, and it's really sad that people continue to buy it, Um, you know, because it's not yeah. like, you know, someone appointed Bolton for him. I mean, he chose to surround himself with Bolton. He nominated Mike Pompeo to be Secretary of State. Um you know, I mean, these aren't just, like, things that were done to poor old President Trump, you know what I mean? So I don't really think that's fair. Um, but, you know, going back now to, you know, how all of this has really fallen apart, um, at least, you know, the plan that um, they were trying to orchestrate, I guess, now to justify hostilities with Iran of these sort of minor events. Um, you know, uh, I think ultimately a lot of this failed because they, uh, Pompeo especially, uh, really failed to garner support for act military action against Iran going abroad. I mean, he made all these abrupt ske- schedule changes. Pompeo did, um, canceling a trip in Russia to go, uh, to Iraq, uh, unannounced and talk about the Iranian threat. And then he went to Europe unannounced, uh, and to talk about the Iranian threat. And he didn't really get the support he was looking for. I think that was pretty clear. Um, and then of course, he didn't get the just the, the pretext or the justification that either he or Bolton or other people, Iran hawks, um, we're looking for. So I think, you know, even though that this may seem sort of like a, a clownish failed effort um, now, I think also like people like this, people like a Bolton, a Pompeo, they're really unstable. Um, they don't like failure. <laughs> and Trump doesn't either. Right. So um, I think that also... Um, could suggest that they may become more, uh, aggressive behind the scenes and trying to conjure something up that could, uh, something more drastic than what's already happened to justify a U.S.-led uh, war with Iran. And what's interesting now and in that what we've just seen really in the past 24 hours is that we're now seeing the U.S. shift focus away from Iran into Syria, right, with this alleged chemical attack now coming back, um, even though it's, um, there's no evidence of it even happening in the apparent people that were targeted, whether it were four, um, four fighters of Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, which is, uh, al-Nusra front or al-Qaeda. In Syria. So, um, that's also absurd. But, you know, beyond that, Syria, you know, is an ally of Iran. They have a mutual defense agreement. So, de- depending on how far, you know, the U.S. responds, because they're already, already threatening reprisals against Syria, depending on how far they go, they may try and pursue war with Iran. That way, it really remains to be seen. But I think that shift is not by accident. It's either to distract yep. from how clownish and failed this effort was, or it's a different way of, of pursuing a different path of pursuing war with Iran
1: Hmm. Okay, so to conclude war with Iran is BS Okay, right, (laughs) so that's the top story done. Let's move on to uh, some of the other stories that have been making headlines around the world Chelsea Manning sent back to jail for refusing to testify against WikiLeaks Former army intelligence analyst turned whistleblower Chelsea Manning was ordered back to jail for refusing to testify to a grand jury Manning had already spent two months in jail for refusing to testify against WikiLeaks co-founder Julian Assange earlier this year. She was briefly released before being hit by prosecutors with a new subpoena. Her defense team have, <clears throat> have argued that she should not be jailed because she has already proven that she won't testify against WikiLeaks, as she does not accept the validity of the court. Under U.S. federal law, a recalcitrant witness can be jailed for civil contempt only. If there's a reasonable possibility that the incarceration will coerce the witness into testifying, Manning has already told the judge that, quote, I would rather starve to death than change my principles. If a judge were to determine that there was no reasonable chance she would change her mind and testify, then Manning could not be held under the law. Prosecutors argue, however, that she has not spent enough time incarcerated and she should return to jail for that reason. The defense consider this punishment as a as a, as a punishment for previous actions that the former President uh, Barack Obama had uh, drastically commuted her sentence and freed her.
0: Well, you know, th- this verdict against Manning is just, is beyond draconian. And, you know, that's because not only does it put her back in jail again, but it slams her with fines for every day she is jailed over a certain period. So this is like extreme coercion, really, um, you know, beyond just trying to have her, uh, be in jail and this is supposed to coerce her into testifying. I mean, now they're adding fines on top of it. So, I mean, they're really trying to to turn up the dial here. And, and, and these fines are no joke. I mean, they start at $500 a day after 30 days in jail. And after 60 days in jail, uh, they go up to $1,000 a day. So not only is wow. Chelsea Manning losing her freedom for refusing to testify, she's also being put into debt. You know, I mean, hasn't the government done enough to Chelsea Manning uh, she, when she was uh, in prison, uh, previously, uh, you know, she, she was tortured. She was in solitary confinement on, um, they conducted weird psyops ag- against her trying to get her to like escape prison so they could, keep, you know, put more charges against her and all this stuff. And now she, she's refusing to testify against WikiLeaks. And not only do they keep sending her back to jail for refusing to testify, but now they're fining her. I just, uh, th- th- this just really shows, um, you know, how the U.S. government works when it pursues these politically motivated cases like this. I mean, it's basically just, you know, bludgeon the people until they do what we want sort of thing. I don't think they're going to get what they want from Chelsea Manning, but this is really going to show, you know, the extent to which the U.S. government is willing to go um, and, and the things they're willing to do to coerce people and to testify and coerce people into doing what they want.
1: Yeah, I mean, you mentioned, I mean, not- you mentioned torture and solitary confinement is regarded around the world as a form of torture and it tends to be only the most authoritarian governments that use uh, that practice at all. And my worry is, is that Chelsea Manning, of course, has had suicidal tendencies in the past and has attempted to commit suicide on more than one occasion and constantly taking her freedom away in this sort of will she won't she and mouse. Uh, game that they're playing just punishing her for uh, her former quote-unquote crimes I mean this could lead to something absolutely tragic happening I think.
0: Yeah no I would definitely agree with that and, and speaking of tragic um, you know incidents regarding whistleblowers on um, what we had uh, earlier this month too and that I covered for for Mint Press because I often write about The Intercept um, is that earlier this month on May um, in, in um, I think the second week of May, um, we had an, a new whistleblower that was a whistleblower to the Intercept. He has now been indicted. Um, the previous uh, whistleblowers that were outed, uh, well, um, <laughs> the previous two whistleblowers, we know for a fact, were, were outed in part by Intercept employees. Uh, they're currently right. serv- uh, serving lengthy prison sentences. Reality Winner is serving uh, a sentence that exceeds five years. Uh, the other one, Terry Albury, is serving a four-year sentence. So now the, the newest one we have is, uh, is Daniel Hale, um, who leaked the drone papers and some other documents to the intercept that really showed the, the, the insanity of the drone war and how, you know, 90% of those killed are civilians and how anyone in the area who's killed, they subsequently label enemy combatants and claim, you know, we got them, even though, you know, they don't know who these people really even are. And things like that, so you know here's another person who's done a public service um and you know no one has gone to prison over the drone program uh that Daniel Hale helped expose, but now Daniel Hale is facing prison time, and he's facing a significant sentence he i think he's um if I remember correctly, it's almost fifty years in prison i mean that's um wow. that's really insane, so um you know what reality winner did I mean she was only accused of leaking one document, and she made a plea deal. Um, and then Terry Albury was accused of leaking more, but he made a plea deal and he pleaded guilty, I believe. Uh, what Daniel Hale will do remains to be seen. Um, but it's really troubling, uh, given what's happened there. And, you know, in relation to what we were just talking about with Chelsea and, Man- uh, Chelsea Manning, uh, remember that Chelsea Manning, um, right now is being asked to testify against Julian Assange, who was supposed to be, you know, she's supposed to, she's the source and he's the journalist, right? So what we have here right. is that Daniel Hale is the source. And the journalist is Jeremy Scahill. And uh, what we have, you know, going on, the argument that the U.S. is making for Julian Assange's extradition to the United States has to do with uh, this this cryptic message that Assange allegedly uh, sent to Manning that was has been interpreted as him, you know, sort of goading her to go back and get more documents and leak even more documents. Well, what we have hidden in this indictment here is that Jeremy Scahill did something similar um with Hale, but on a degree that, you know, if they're pursuing Assange in this angle, it, it would be really surprising to not see them pursue uh pursue Scahill for the same reasons. And this is because um Hale and Scahill before he leaked the documents had sort of known each other um and because Hale had initiated contact with Scahill. And then what happened is that Hale emailed a resume to Scahill because he was going to try and get a job with a defense contractor. So basically Even though they don't have the content, the communications, they have a strong case that Hale and Scahill, you know, worked together to get Hale hired by a contractor. And then once he was hired, he leaked documents to Scahill. So if they're going to, you know, use that same, that same claim against Assange and Manning. And, you know, in that case, it's based off of this one alleged very cryptic message. I mean, here with Skahiel, you have a very...
1: I think um, the message was, curious eyes never run dry, wasn't it?
0: Right, right. That I couldn't remember the quote, but that's it. Right. So, they don't even have the communications between uh and Hale, but the other, but, you know, the fact that they talked about the resume and had phone calls and that they, you know, basically, it seems, based on what the indictment says, it it argues that they worked together to get Hale hired and then he would leak to Skahiel. Um, you know, if they don't pursue Jeremy Scahill for this, um, it'll be, uh, very surprising. And, you know, in my opinion, uh, the only reason they won't pursue him will be for two reasons. Either Scahill is, uh, is, um, will agree to testify or at least sign something that sort of confirms that Hale was a source in, in exchange for immunity, um, or something like that, which would be just disgusting. I really hope that doesn't happen. Um, or the other thing is that, you know, Pierre Omidyar of The Intercept swings in, who's super connected to government and the military and all that, um, and make some sort of deal to keep Hill out of water. Um, or, you know, it could also be that the U.S. government doesn't really see Hill as an adversarial, as adversarial less as Hill sees himself or as, you know, as Julian Assange is or something like that. So, um, I think, however, this case develops, we're going to learn a lot about uh, who Jeremy Scahill really is. And let's remember, too, that uh, Daniel Hale's lawyer, Jessalyn Raddick, who's a really well-known whistleblower lawyer and represented John Kiriakou and Tom Drake and, and other whistleblowers, um, she has publicly, publicly said that uh, Jeremy Scahill utterly failed at source protection, and that's part of why Hale has been indicted. So given the Intercept's history, that's really troubling. Um, so, you know, we'll see what's going on uh, with this case. But either way, I mean, May is once again another very sad month for whistleblowers and for people that take tremendous risks to bring the truth to the public.
1: Okay, from cyber warfare to agro warfare, our second story is how GMO seeds and Monsanto and buyers Roundup are driving U.S. policy in Venezuela. Everyone knows that the main US interest in Venezuela is its oil, since the country has the world's largest oil reserves. But other major corporations, particularly big agricultural companies, are also eyeing a comeback if the US succeeds in removing Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro from power. One of these companies is Monsanto, now wholly owned by its buyer. Monsanto's uh, most well-known product, glyphosate, also known by its brand name Roundup, is under fire in courts as uh, the courts have ruled that they are finding that the product does indeed cause cancer, something Monsanto itself knew about for decades. And Bayer is being ordered to pay vast sums of money uh, to those injured by this Monsanto product. So what is happening is a disaster for Bayer and for the Roundup market. But what does this have to do with Venezuela? I know you wrote about this a lot, Whitney, didn't you?
0: Yes, I did. I wrote a pretty lengthy report about this. So... um. This relates to Venice, all, all these troubles for, for Bayer and Monsanto. This relates to Venezuela I, uh, for the following reason. Uh, Venezuela currently uh, has a, a, a very uh, large ban on genetically modified seeds, seeds and their associated agrochemical chemicals, including Roundup. Um, and this law uh, has been praised by environmental groups around the world as one of the most progressive seed laws in the entire world. So the Venezuelan opposition, once they took control of the National Assembly, they've attempted several times to reverse this bill. And of course, uh, parties that have, you know, led these efforts include Juan Guaido's Popular Will Party. Um, and interestingly enough, part of uh, Juan Guaido's so-called Plan País, um, which is his economic plan for Venezuela if he comes to power. Um, there's, uh, it's not super detailed, that plan. Um, and a lot of it has to do with, you know, oil infrastructure and whatnot. But when it, when it doesn't talk about oil, it talks about farmers and it talks about agriculture and increasing that industry, uh, which is actually pretty underdeveloped in Venezuela by Latin American standards. But that's something that's been a problem, uh, for Venezuela since the 1940s. That's not a problem caused by, by Chavez or Chavismo or anything like that. It's, it's kind of a longstanding, um, issue so I, I argued in this report that a lot of the investment um that while was talking about here would be aimed at you know lining monsanto's pockets and this is because one of the main donors to the hawkish think tank that had john Bolton on his pay on its payroll for years uh, the american enterprise institute and someone who was also one of the top donors to marco rubio who as we know is one of the architects of this coup uh, this guy is uh this donor i'm talking about here that's paul singer um now has a sizable amount of stock in Buyer. And strangely, he started increasing his stock significantly in December, even after all the uh, several U.S. court cases had already ruled against Monsanto. And it was pretty clear that more would be ruling against Monsanto and things were going to get worse for Buyer, which has come true. And so, you know, it's really weird that, um, or it seems weird, right, that Singer would be buying all the stock at a time when other investors are running away because of this major headache um, for Bayer. Um, because they're being issued to pay like millions and millions of dollars in settlements, right? Um, and obviously, it, it's a threat to the ability of the company to sell Roundup in any markets because most countries are going to ban it um, at, as these court cases go forward. So um, I would argue, you know, well, I argue here that I think Paul Singer has been anticipating a new market uh, in Venezuela for Monsanto's most troubled product.
1: Well, I mean, you did say that Venezuela is one of the most urbanized countries in uh, Latin America. So about 90% uh, of people live in cities or towns there. And there's really not much of an agricultural sector there. That's no doubt uh, in most part because of uh, the huge oil wealth of the country, which right. uh, draws people into cities and um, actually discourages farmers because of the currency reserve uh, exchange rate where the uh, it just becomes so much cheaper to bring in agricultural products from Absolutely. abroad.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's what I sort of reference. I mean, this has been a, pro- a problem since the 1940s. Because of the extreme focus on oil. And so the agricultural sector relative to other Latin American countries has been really neglected. And so that's why that's a major reason why they import so much of their food. And, you know, I think any government, you know, in Venezuela, it would be wise to invest more in the agricultural sector. But given Guaido, who he works for and, you know, who he's taking orders from in the U.S., right? I mean, it really makes you wonder what sort of investment he's planning um, for uh venezuela's agricultural sector if he uh ever gets to the point of trying to uh you know enact his planned país
1: yeah i mean if you look at the uh, at venezuela's sister country colombia just across the border it's uh, quite a different story so for decades we've seen uh colombia with a very strong agricultural sector um but that's really changing in recent years as um as the us has gotten much more involved in the country we've seen uh uh, George Bush, for instance, start Plan Colombia, which was a, supposedly a story of uh, attacking uh, narco guerrillas, narco traffickers, uh, you know, trying to uh, trying to help the Colombian government against FARC. But really, what was going on in the countryside was a massive war against the peasantry to try and force them off uh, this land. And then we saw these huge companies linked to Monsanto, linked to Bayer, etc., come in and uh use uh, the land for themselves to start growing huge cash crops.
0: Well, let's as not as well. Let, let's uh, going back to Plan Colombia for a second. Let's not forget that part of this war against farmers in Colombia that Plan Colombia represented was them sp- uh, supposedly eradicating coca crops by spraying Roundup from planes. And right. this was also falling on regular people's land, destroying their crops, right? Not just coca crops. I mean, so, you know, it was a it was a win-win for Monsanto, right? Not only were they using Monsanto products to force people from their lands and destroy their farms, but then Monsanto comes back and also offers the solution at the end, right?
1: Right. And this stuff is absolutely, I mean, it's not just that it causes cancer. It's absolutely horrific for human beings right. in any sort of a large amount, you know. This is basically the same formula as what was dropped in Vietnam as Agent Orange, which completely destroyed people's. Well,
0: it's it's skin. different. It, it, it's chemically you know, different, but effects, it's also it's also like very damaging to health. But it's chemically different from the class that um that Agent Orange Agent Orange what uh that Agent Orange is um. But Agent Orange was also reduced into other uh, was also changed into other uh, forms of pesticides and things like that, but not glyphosate. Um. But anyway, um, so going back to this, it's really interesting, too, that, um, you know, I was talking about Paul Singer, who is you know, the, one of the main donors to Marco Rubio and a, and a major donor to um, the American Enterprise Institute, which, of course, is like this huge um, neoconservative think tank. It's known for employing people like John Bolton, Paul Wolfowitz, uh, a bunch of people that were in the Bush administration and all that. And all that. Um, their other top donor from the, the, one of the, the only documents, uh, that we have that publicly, uh, has shown who their donors really are. Uh, they normally aren't intended for public disclosure, but because of a filing error, one was obtained by the nation in 2013. So in addition to Paul Singer, the other, um, top donor is the Donors Capital Fund, and this was, uh, founded by Daniel, uh, Searle. Uh, well, um, well, sorry. Let me back up. The Donors Capital Fund, most of its money comes from uh, the Searle Freedom Trust, which was founded by Daniel Searle. And the head of the Donors Capital Trust uh, is Kimberly O'Dennis, who is uh, not only a member of the inter, uh, the AEI or American Enterprise Institute National Council, but she's also uh, the chairwoman of the Searle, uh, the, the Searle Freedom Trust. And uh, interestingly enough, Daniel Searle uh, was the head of J.D. Searle & Co., which once employed Donald Rumsfeld, right? Um, and... Uh, but he uh also sold his company to Monsanto in nineteen eighty five for two point $2. seven billion dollars. So there's another um uh, Monsanto um link there and actually Daniel Searle's grandson was also an American Enterprise Institute trustee until just a few years ago. So you know there's a lot of uh surprising Monsanto connections to this one think tank, and it's really no surprise that they uh on you know in, in their fellows and all all of this, um there's there's uh, a few that actively promote Um, you know, Monsanto products and genetically modified crops and things like that. And um, as part of, you know, economic policy and all this stuff and biotechnology, I mean, they really heavily promote it, Um, which is no coincidence, right?
1: Sure. Yeah. All right. So, well, let's go back to cyber warfare again. And uh, something that you wrote and have been writing a lot about is uh, the story about uh, Microsoft's election guard, uh, the story you wrote was called Worse Than NewsGuard: Microsoft's Election Guard, brought to you by DARPA.
0: Well, this is the working title, so as we're recording this, this hasn't been published yet, but it will be published by the time that the podcast goes out. So, um, this is about Election Guard. Uh, some people may remember uh, Press's work on NewsGuard. Um These are actually sister programs. So, earlier this month, um, you know, Microsoft announced its, quote, its supposed solution to protect American elections from interference, and it names this this piece of election technology news guard. And it's already set, uh, election guard, right, is already set to be uh, adopted by half of voting machine manufacturers in the U.S. And already some state governments have signed on for the 2020 general election. This includes the state of Colorado, also the state of Minnesota. Um, there are probably more, but those are the only ones that um, I've seen come up so far and that have been promoted on, on by Microsoft on, um, some, uh, uh, on their website and things like that. So, um, election guard, when it was announced, it was really uh, heavily promoted by the mainstream media and that has continued, um, uh, over the past few weeks. Uh, but they don't, you know, uh, none of those reports disclose that election guard was developed by companies, Microsoft and another company that I'll get, in, uh, that we can get into here in a sec, uh, that both have really deep ties to the U.S. defense and intelligence communities. And also the fact that the technology that's being promoted, even though it's, quote, open source, uh, that the fact that it's open source does not necessarily mean, uh, that it's immune to interference or the manipulation of vote totals. So, uh, some very shady stuff going on here. So going back to NewsGuard for a second, let's remember that NewsGuard is this news reading company, um, that they claim to fight fake news, but they have all these connections to the American Enterprise Institute we were just talking about. Um, they also, um, you know, how on the board of advisors, they have Richard Stengel, who under Obama, he described his position in the Obama administration as, um, a go- as being the government's chief propagandist. They also have a former CIA director and NSA director on there, a former director of the Department of Homeland Security. Um, on their board, um, they rated Mint Press, uh, after our, uh, <laughs> article on them, uh, unsurprisingly, they gave us a red rating. It was a really disingenuous, uh, review of our work and we responded to it uh, piece by piece or point by point rather um, in a very in-depth piece for those that are interested. It's on MintPress's website right now. But anyway, through its partnership with Microsoft, NewsGuard was installed on public libraries uh, in the entire state of Hawaii and some counties in Ohio. Um, I'm sure they're planning more next and in universities throughout the country. But they haven't had much su- uh, success in the United States uh, for whatever reason, so now they've turned their um, attention overseas, particularly to the United Kingdom, where they are now talking with internet service providers uh, to basically force their service uh, or their news rating surface on everyone that uses uh, the internet in the United Kingdom. And anytime they go to a website that NewsGuard says is bad, you will receive a warning and be asked if you wish to proceed uh, before going to a site known for disinformation, according to NewsGuard. So that's pretty troubling, right? But anyway, going back to Election Guard, um, Election Guard claims to be a system uh that's aimed at, quote, making uh to that, that aims to quote, make voting secure, more accessible, and more efficient, end quote. And um in, you know, but let, let's keep in mind too this was developed with by Microsoft uh in conjunction with another company uh called Galois. Um and Microsoft is one of the largest corporations in the world, right? Um they're uh Now, they've, uh, become a contractor to the U.S. military and intelligence communities. They're doing, um, work for the CIA and the entire intelligence community. Um, they're doing, uh, they're, they're providing, um, HoloLens technology to the U.S. military and doing other stuff for the military as well. Um, and, uh, the other company involved in this, Galois, is, um, very close to the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, better known as DARPA, um, which is actually uh, one of the main investors in Galois, the other investor being the Office of Naval Research, which means that the only investor in Galois is the U.S. Department of Defense. Um, Galois' uh, only clients that they list on their website are U.S. government agencies, um, and a few of them, um, uh, some other websites have claimed that their their clients also include, you know, weapons manufacturers like General Dynamics. So... Um, it's pretty interesting that this group is really all of a sudden super interested in securing uh, American elections.
1: Yeah, I mean, exactly. Like, going back to the shady business of NewsGuard and ElectionGuard, I mean, it, it sounds like a great service to like normies that you know, oh, we'll we'll protect you from fake news and PR from the internet. But the fact is, is that you know, when you look at their investors. A lot of themselves are, you know, people who have been actively involved in spreading fake news. I mean, you mentioned Michael Hayden, who is the former chief of the NSA and CIA and who the Columbia Journalism Review, for instance, noted that he had a long history of making misleading and outright false statements during his career in public service. One of their investors is a, a group called Corvis that was reached as, <clears throat> that recently took up the task of whitewashing Saudi Arabia's war in Yemen in the U.S. press. I mean, this is like trusting a fox to guard your hens, or it's the you know the classic poacher turned gamekeeper. You know, it, if they were being honest and said, you know, we could protect we could protect you from fake news, we should know we were doing most of it, so we know all the tricks. <laughs> that would be one thing, but they're not saying that at all. No, they're, they're presenting not. themselves. Like this completely neutral service that will just come in and, you know, block the internet for you. Well, you, you know, they, they,
0: they claim they're solving the fake news problem by fighting it with journalism. That's like their official claim, right? And it's really funny because one of the, quote, journalists that founded NewsGuard is uh, Lewis Gordon Krovitz, who used to publish the Wall Street Journal, had a column there. And one of his columns, uh, he actually, he, he claimed that the internet um, didn't have any, like, government involvement or something. And he wrote this story and then uh, several of the sources he cited came out and said that he just made stuff up that they said and that he was totally lying and accused him of making fake news.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And when you look at their, you know, rating system, it was, you know, it's pretty obvious what's going on. You know, even places like Fox news get a nice green light, you know, when you go into NewsGuard or wherever, and they've been responsible for some of the most, howling fake news over the last 20 years or more.
0: Or, and Steve, so, or CNN, right? Those yeah, are all sure. Green...
1: I mean, basically, it's independent media is rated, you know, very suspicious, whereas, you know, the corporate media, which falls within the beltway of, you know, uh, basically establishment Republicans to Hillary Clinton Democrats, that anything right. that has that outlook is is absolutely fine. And so it's an extension of what's ha- been happening over the past few years, where, you know, for instance, that story proper not uh, that website that purported to you know uh, show a list of all these fake news websites and it was basically just all alternative media was on there and then that was used by Google Bing youtube uh Twitter, etc as the basis for them changing their algorithms to make you know so-called high quality news much more accessible. But what actually happened was just alternative media, even really high quality ones, like, for instance, the Intercept that we've been talking about, they had their viewing figures and search traffic just smashed by this overnight. And it's got the effect of disincentivizing, de-ranking, de-listing, and even deleting alternative media, which is criticizing exactly the sorts of companies and deals that they themselves are part of.
0: Right. So now that Microsoft has brought us NewsGuard, I think it's really interesting that they're bringing us ElectionGuard. Both NewsGuard and ElectionGuard are part of this program that Microsoft calls its Defending Democracy program, um, which is pretty telling, Um, I think. I think it's also pretty telling that Microsoft is, um, you know, act- taking like getting on its philanthropic high horse and being like, oh, well, we care about election safety and security so much that we're going to offer this service for free. Um, which is really bizarre when you consider the fact that Microsoft has like a very lengthy history of predatory corporate practices, including price gouging (laughs) and just,
1: I mean, this is exactly, this is exactly what, you know, drug dealers do, isn't it? You know, you flood the market with free stuff and then. Once everyone's hooked, you just uh, jack up the prices.
0: Yeah, but what's interesting is they're not asking the people if they want to adopt Election Guard. They're going straight, just, just like NewsGuard is now going to internet service providers in the UK. Microsoft is going directly to the voting machine manufacturers, and they're going to the state governments, um, is what they're trying to do to get this imposed. And they've already had um, some people agree, um, but it, you know it's very troubling um, on a lot of levels, um, specifically because you know DARPA. Even though it's you know a U.S. government, um, <laughs> you know agency, it's involved in like horrible stuff. So this is like where all the futuristic military research goes on, and and you know here's an example of some of the stuff they've been researching. So they've been researching yeah, I mean, how to I'm um, reading that. Oh. It
1: sounds like Total Recall or something. It's just yeah. insane yeah. sort of stuff.
0: It's terrifying. I mean, it's like dystopian. Uh, it's it's stuff out of like dystopian movies. Like Terminator, I guess would really be you know, the type of technologies you see in like the Terminator movies. I mean, that that's what darPA is is actively trying to create for our world. So examples of some of the stuff that they're that that they're into right now um, is implanting in microchips into soldiers' brains, um, replace uh, creating robot soldiers to replace human soldiers apparently to have more robot soldiers than human soldiers by the year 2025, that's not far away, uh, create killer Terminator-like robots and artificial intelligence targeting systems that are autonomous and self-aware that will use social media to identify potential targets. So let's also remember, too, that the guy uh, at DARPA, who was in charge of overseeing the super soldier program and this, like, uh, implanting microchips in people's brain thing, he told a journalist for The Atlantic in 2015 that he didn't see any difference in, quote, uh, having a chip in your brain that could help control your thoughts, end quote, and, quote, uh, a cochlear implant that helps the deaf hear. So this right. is a guy that, you know, is basically, like, totally cool with mind control technology, doesn't see anything wrong with it. He thinks it's basically the same as, like, hearing implants for deaf people. <laughs> and, and, wow. and, 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 you know, and this is, and he's, you know, part of this agency. He's a top guy at this agency that now wants to secure our election systems. I mean, are you kidding me? People that are that are looking at this uncritically are just, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm troubled by that. And I'm really surprised right. no one else found this out because, you know, uh, this, it, it Election Guard was announced like the first week of May. Uh, it's almost the end of May. And there's been a bunch of reports on it, but they basically just quoted Microsoft press release about how great Microsoft is mm. without going into any of this. And it's also interesting. we were talking about the American Enterprise Institute with NewsGuard and all of that. Actually, there are Election Guard connections, unsurprisingly, to this same uh, <laughs> uh, neoconservative think tank and also the Charles Koch Institute um and so you know that should be a red flag for some people you would think um (laughs) so it's really interesting to see them pop up everywhere um and also some top investors in newsguard are also on the strategic board of advisors for some affiliates of um uh one of the co-developers of election guard so that's um an interesting, uh, dual connection and really shows you that this, I don't know, it really seems like it it was sort of planned out by neoconservatives somewhere, all the stuff, the news guard and the election guard and whatnot, sort of as a response to what happened in, in 2016. Um, but, you know, uh, there's another angle here, um, that I think is, is important and, um, that has to do with the fact that, you know, so this is supposed, this whole thing is supposed to protect against foreign interference, right? And so I guess, you know, in theory, you could argue, or you know, the people that promote election guard could argue that, oh, well, their connections to the U.S. military, and you know, that's not foreign interference. You know, it's part of our government, blah blah blah. Um, but it's also important to point out that Microsoft has a lot of connections to Israeli military intelligence, uh, and and I'll go into this in a in a second. So they have a lot of overlap with uh, the the IDF's unit uh, 8200, which is its military intelligence unit. Uh, some compare it to like the NSA of Israel. Um, So Microsoft's uh, cloud storage technology, it comes from a company it bought called Adalom, uh, which was founded by Asif Rappaport, who used to work at McKinsey Company, but before that was Israeli uh, military intelligence. Microsoft also um, invests in Elusive Networks, which is a a subsidiary of Team 8. Team 8 is this uh, cybersecurity company incubator and creates all these cybersecurity spinoffs. It was co-founded by several members of the IDF's uh, Unit 8200, including the founder of that unit, basically the founder of the NSA of Israel, right? Um, and it was also, in uh, Team 8 was uh, founded uh, with a lot of funding that came from Google, a former CEO of Google, uh, Eric Schmidt, which is pretty crazy. And Team 8 actually recently hired Mike Rogers, who was former director of the NSA and U.S. Cyber Command, Um and now he's working for them. And let's also remember too that Microsoft um, is a contractor for the IDF. Um, previously for cloud storage, now for HoloLens technology. So you know, I'm not saying that it's bad that Microsoft does business with Israel or the IDF. or Well, I personally don't agree with that because I support you know BDS. But um, you know, my issue here is that, you know, imagine if you know the company that was offering election guard and offering to protect uh, elections from foreign influence had uh, had connections like this to Russian military intelligence. I mean it really makes you wonder if the concern is foreign interference or foreign influencing elections or just, you know, that kind of influence just from state adversaries like it's okay if it's our allies or something like that. It's a it's a really strange connection so you know, it's just another level of the the dubiousness surrounding election guard.
1: Yeah, I mean there's so many easier ways to Improve the integrity of elections, whether that's you know looking at voter suppression or intimidation or the ridiculous gerrymandering of the system or the fact that there's barely any open polling stations. And when you get there, all the machines are broken, etc. No, they're not I mean, interested it's, it's in so that. so much more easier ways. Yeah. All right. Shall we move on to our next story?
0: Sounds good. Coming up next is an interview with the other Mint Press News staff writer, Alex Rubenstein. He's going to be talking about his time in the Venezuelan Embassy in DC.
1: Police raid Venezuelan Embassy in DC, arrest last remaining members of the Embassy Protection Collective. U.S. police have broken into the Venezuelan embassy in Washington, D.C., and arrested the remaining protesters of the Embassy Protection Collective. Activists have been present inside the embassy since April 10th and were invited in by the Venezuelan government, who were forced by the Trump administration to leave the country. Since then, there has been a relatively bloodless but far from silent battle between anti-war activists, such as the feminist group Code Pink, and Mint Press News' own staff writer Alex Rubinstein, and pro-Guaido opposition groups determined to force them out of the embassy and President Maduro out of power in Caracas. The Venezuelan government has declared the US's actions as a strong violation of the Vienna Convention, with President Nicolas Maduro damning the attempt by the US to seize his country's property, pointing to the embassy's inviolability under international law. This brings us to a related story published on Mint Press News called... Who's Behind the Pro Guaido Crowd, Besieging the Venezuela's D.C. Embassy, written by Jess Sprague and Alex Rubinstein, who investigated the characters leading the anti-Venezuelan government protests outside the embassy. Joining us today to discuss his experiences there, this story and the latest efforts uh, by the Embassy Protection Collective is Mint Press News staff writer Alex Rubinstein. Welcome to the Mintcast, Alex. Thank you for having me. So I suppose uh, I just wanted to get a background on what happened there. Uh, What were the circumstances of why you were in the embassy in the first place?
2: Well, I was there uh, documenting what was going on as a a journalist, Um, but the activists who were inside uh, were there serving as an interim protectorate at the invitation of the democratically elected government of Venezuela, and they were there for 37 days. The idea was to hold the embassy until the United States and Venezuela reached a what's called a Protecting Power Agreement, and this would allow a third-party country to uh, serve as a protector of the Venezuelan embassy in D.C. Um, and basically run operations there in place of the Venezuelan government, and also a third-party country would do the same for the U.S. embassy in Caracas. That is actually a process that's ongoing. Uh, Venezuela and Turkey have reached an agreement to do that, but the State Department needs to sign off on it. And uh, it's it's not really clear whether they intend to do so. Um, the alternative, of course, is to hand it over to Juan Guido's, uh fake ambassador to the United States, who is a character by the name of Carlos Vecchio, um, and basically turn the embassy into a coup plotting center.
0: Wow, okay. The coverage I saw um, from you and, and uh, the other journalists that uh, came into the embassy later, uh, later Anya Parampil, um, were that some of these protesters were engaged in uh, a lot of very... Uh, unattractive behavior trying to say it the nicest way possible um could you describe some of the the threats um and and sort of aggressive uh, aggression that you received as a journalist there in the embassy and that you also saw other people in, the, in this collective receive
2: sure yeah and i'm actually hesitant to call what was happening outside a protest because i've covered uh hundreds of protests in my time as a journalist and I have never seen tactics like this really what it was was a mob and uh it was a mob that was abetted by the secret service and later the metropolitan police department they were allowed to uh blast megaphones directly into people's ears uh they had these scuba lights they had like you know dozens of these uh expensive scuba lights that they were shining directly into people's eyes and 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 in, a, in an attempt to give them retina damage. Um, and of course, ear damage could come from the, those megaphones and the horns and stuff. Um, and they were just, you know, following people around, banging pots and pans all day. They were, uh, you know, the neighbors. So it was, you know, the embassy is in Georgetown, which is a very, uh, uh, fancy neighborhood. And they, the neighbors were displeased with the ruckus. Um, and, you know, they would shine the lights into the embassy at like five in the morning. Um, to wake people up Uh, and they were constantly trying to break into the embassy we had one guy who broke in uh, by the name of Muhammad who uh, he ransacked an office in the building um, in an attempt to barricade himself in and uh, he caused like hundreds of dollars of property damage and I actually filmed the police coming in and uh, escorting him out and the first thing they said to him was you know you're not arrested right and he says yes I know Later that day, he was doing. He was seen by journalists doing private security for Carlos Vecchio, and this is the kind of impunity that was like happening throughout. There were people that were uh, uh, trying to deliver food to the embassy because you know the opposition was trying to starve the embassy protectors out, and uh, they were assaulted in that process and then arrested and charged with assault themselves. Um, so this is, I mean, it's it, it was very one sided. I was actually. Um, I was in the garage at one point when I overheard the secret service conducting a shift change. So, um, you know, the, uh, one, I heard one officer briefing another officer. And one thing he said was, uh, was one that, uh, their arrest authority wasn't clear. Um, and two, that the pro Guaido people were quote, basically the U S government and that the quote anti-war people across the street were funded by, quote, Russia or whatever. <laughs> so, um, yeah. you know, it just goes, I think it's, a, I think it's a really interesting anecdote because it shows that, you know, even the S- Secret Service is being propagandized. Obviously nobody there was paid by Russia or, or Venezuela for that matter. Even if, you know, a lot of people are saying that they were paid by Venezuela, but like Venezuela can't even pay its own diplomats in the U.S. So, because of the sanctions. So, it, you know, it's impossible, actually, uh, for that to be the case. Um, and, and, yeah, there was also, you know, a good degree of violence, too. Um, there, there were, most, mostly the opposition got violent when food was being delivered. Um, and, and, you know, also chanting, no food, no water. So, you know, people that were uh, delivering food, one, one of them was uh, the president, Jerry Condon, the president of Veterans for Peace, uh, and he, he threw a cucumber up to the embassy, and he was uh, violently brought to the ground by Secret Service. They left lacerations all over his face, and uh, they didn't call an ambulance. It was actually Dr. Margaret Flowers, who was inside the embassy watching it all happen, who called the ambulance. Um, and he was charged with uh, throwing missiles. That was the name of the charge that he was ah, stuck with.
0: Cucumber um, missiles,
2: that's new. Right. Um, so, you know, the, this is,
0: and of course nobody
2: on their side was, was charged I haven't seen any charges for people on their side. I know that a couple of them have been detained. Um, but, uh, the, the policing was clearly one-sided and, you know, I, I just want to say I, I covered Charlottesville. I was in Charlottesville and I was about, you know, um, 10 feet, five feet to 10 feet away from the car attack that happened there. And so I saw a lot of violence, and I saw more violence in Charlottesville than I saw in DC. But what I saw more of in DC was racism, like vocalized racism. Um, people were comparing black people to monkeys, black embassy protectors to monkeys, waving bananas in front of their face. Alina uh, Duarte, who's a correspondent for Telestor, was told that she's an ugly Indian and that, you know, Um, the person who told it to her is going to wake up white in the morning and, and be, be happy. And she's just always going to be an ugly Indian. And those are just a few examples. I mean, it was like every day that these, that these slurs were being hurled and not just racist slurs, but homophobic slurs and, uh, misogynistic slurs. Uh, so, I mean, that was, that was the feature of, that was like a main feature of, uh, the opposition was just these like intimidation tactics and, uh, and bigoted slurs. And I think that eventually they realized that, you know, this was not reflecting well on them. And so they hired a PR firm and, and, and really changed their messaging, but, you know, still had a lot of uh, trouble controlling uh, the previous messaging and it was still coming out. Um, one day that was actually really striking was all of a sudden I, I woke up in the morning and I look, I look out the window and there were just dozens and dozens of, of the oppositionists wearing uh, pride flags over their backs, and it was shocking because I, I, I just heard them using you know homophobic slurs for like the past like week and a half, um, and then the next day all the flags were gone. <laughs> they just disappeared. So like it would, they just supported pride for like one day, I think, for, <laughs> for a photo op, you know. So that that was really interesting. But you know, it, it again, I just want to reiterate this. This was a mob. This was not a protest. I've I've seen hundreds of protests, and uh, I've never seen anything like this. I've never seen such one-sided policing. You know, people always say uh, that the police protect white supremacists, and I've seen that quite a bit, um, but I've never seen it so, uh, so blatant. so
1: see why you really don't want to call them a, a protest or protesters, especially reading your article. I mean, you managed to unearth some really interesting characters, for instance you know, Emerson Hedder, who was one of the protesters, was a senior principal architect at Raytheon, the arms manufacturer, or there was Moises Rendon, who was a fellow at NATO and a defence contractor, Uh, or you know, for instance, uh, one other person you pointed out was Alejandro Perez-Balios, who was a former senior employee at the World Bank, and all of these people are taking time off to join this quote-unquote protest to try and get you out of the embassy. It, It seems that Right now, am I right in saying that there are no more uh, embassy coalition people inside the embassy right now?
2: That's correct, and there's also no representatives of the shadow government of Wang Guaido either. And, uh, you know, before all this, they seized uh, the consulate in New York
1: City, and they're not going there either. And why is that, do you know? Is that uh, something that they've been told to do? Is that a a tactical decision they've made there?
2: Well, I think that... I don't know about New York. In DC, they said that they're like doing like some kind of renovation or or, or something. Probably uh, setting up like you know like uh, smearing feces on the walls or something, (laughs) like they did with Assange. You know to say like, oh, look at the embassy protectors trash the place, but people took very good care of the place. Um, And things things were broken, but they were all broken by the opposition. Like windows, uh, they were like they did a bunch of damage to one of the doors, a couple of the doors actually um but no the the embassy protection collective uh took very good care of the the place there were like you know daily cleanings um and uh eventually i think that they will go in but they're waiting for like the photo op i see that I, i uh i heard actually that they um that they put up a new flag with like the seven stars instead of the eight stars because uh uh chavez had that extra star added to the Venezuelan flag, and, and obviously they reject uh, Chavez.
0: Well, uh, really quick, I want to touch on some of the other journalists that weren't inside the embassy. They were outside, but they covered the event. So there were, um, there was some mainstream coverage. Uh, it wasn't very intensive, but you know, it was there. And you also had people like, uh, from Vice News, uh, trying to get in at one point, right? And you also had, uh, Democracy Now! Um, do you think uh, any of those outlets uh, fairly covered um, what was going on inside the embassy and the purpose of the embassy protection collective? Uh, and do you think any of them were uh, overly sympathetic with the pro Guaido um, opposition people outside?
2: So just just to be clear, I haven't really had time to review much of the coverage that's been posted about this because I've been so busy right, covering sure. it myself. Okay. Um. But uh the Vice News one was really bad. It was it was I mean, I expected bad from Vice because uh they typically um follow the Imperial line. But uh this was, this was really like shockingly bad and they didn't talk about any of the uh tactics that I was just discussing at all. They they totally erased that from the history. Um and actually one of the producers at Vice messaged me on Twitter. He sent me a private message uh asking whether you know, this was once we had fallen under siege and, and nobody was allowed to come in or out by the opposition. Um and, you know, he said that, you know, oh, I've been hanging around with the Venezuelans for uh for like more than a week now and I think that they would agree to allow me to go inside to interview you guys. Uh do you think that would happen? And I, I brought it up with the Embassy Protection Collective and obviously the answer was no, but, you know, it, it it was a uh it was not surprising for that reason uh of saying you know they'd allow me entry when they're not allowing anyone else entry or any any supplies um and it showed in the coverage uh how friendly they were with them. um I'll also say that the washington post uh, reporter uh Marissa yang, I believe maybe that's wrong. um I forget her last name, but uh she she did a really terrible job too she. Uh, was regurgitating uh, false allegations by the opposition um, uncritically, um, things that are just like total, totally false. And actually, that guy that broke in, Mohammed, one of the guys that broke in, I should say. Um, when he when he did break in, I, I documented the whole thing, and uh, and then a couple hours later, uh, Marissa with the Washington Post said, "Oh well, Code Pink accused him of breaking in." And it's like no, no. I documented him breaking in, and I documented him ransacking an office on video. I, I and I don't think it was a situation of her not doing her research because she was obviously following the Code Pink account, and Code Pink was retweeting everything I tweeted. So uh, it's it's pretty. I, I find it highly unlikely that she didn't see that. Um, and the you know the mainstream media coverage is just generally bad, so it wasn't surprising. Um, And I I will say that the post did a little bit better than I thought it would, um, but it was still very bad, you know, Uh, and apart from that, I mean, it's just it's it was an excuse for the media to like, you know, another excuse for the media to uh, to make fun of and belittle anti-war protesters, which is one of their favorite pastimes
0: conclude do you think that the this whole deal with the turkey and venezuela and all that do you think the state department will end up signing off based on what uh you saw the state department ostensibly working with secret service and sort of directing sort of this response uh on the ground do you think you know, uh you'll we'll see them uh sort of approve this deal with turkey uh, just just a short uh opinion
2: well i don't i don't really have an opinion one way or the other uh, i'll give you the pros and cons real quick if you don't mind um, and that's the, the the advantage to agreeing to this means that their embassy in Caracas, which is far more expensive and filled with CIA equipment, um, is safe. Uh, the The disadvantage is that Carlos Vecchio and Juan Guaido and uh, Gustavo Taré, who is the uh, the um, uh, shadow government ambassador to the Organization of American States, don't get their photo off, which is what they've been looking for for the past, like, month or so. Um, They actually showed up with uh, their own placards, official placards, uh, on the first day that Vecchio came there, Um, but he wound up running away after uh, the Embassy Protection Collective drowned out his speech uh, on loudspeakers. So, um, it it could go either way. It depends on what's more important to to the State Department, protecting their embassy or uh, giving uh, Guaido the photo op.
0: Okay, alright, well, Thanks so much for your perspective on this, Alex, and great work documenting everything that went down there.
2: Thank you so much.
0: All right, that's all the time we have for this week uh, for this week's edition of the Mintcast from MintPressNews.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it on social media or become a patron of the show at Patreon.com. Uh, for myself, uh, Alan, and the entire Mint Press News team, until next week.